Welcome back to Out of the Cold, a podcast that dives deep into unsolved and solved cold cases in North Texas. I'm Deanna Boyd. So today we're exploring the unsolved murder of Teresa Branch, an 18-year-old high school senior who was raped and shot in Arlington in April 1986. So there are some murder cases that seem more like a made-up plot to a scary movie. You know, a beautiful young woman ventures off into the night after her car breaks down and winds up dead. Such is the case of Teresa Branch. Teresa was a mixture of spunk and fire blonde-haired, athletic young woman who always seemed up for fun and seemed to draw people in with her sense of humor and good looks. Her dad, Kenneth, had been 18 when he ran off to join the Navy without even telling his parents. And it's while stationed in Spain that he meets Teresa's mom, Mercedes. The two marry, have a son named Claudio, and eventually move to California, where Teresa is born. Kenneth then finally returns home to Texas, where he and his wife have another son, John. So in the early 70s, the family moves into a house they'd had built in Arlington. So it was a nice house, and actually we were one of the first people in this subdivision. They were literally still breaking the ground, and it was all fields. The kids grew up with the neighborhood as their playground. They attended Arlington schools, and while Claudio has happy memories from his childhood, he also admits there was a lot of dysfunction within the family. Their father, Kenneth, suffered from schizophrenia. Their mother, Mercedes, had only about a fifth grade education, and here she is living in a new country, unfamiliar with the culture and customs. So for years, Claudio says, the kids had kind of been given free reign, and they certainly took advantage of that. He remembers one day answering a knock on the door to find Teresa, then 15, outside along with two police officers. I'm like, hey, what's going on, sis? Who are your friends here? You know, I'm just letting her have it. And the cops are kind of, you know, just kind of looking down and grinning. And so my parents were letting my sister drive before she was old enough to actually have a driver's license. My mother, my own mother, didn't have a driver's license ever. And she was driving around. So if it's good enough for mom, you know, that's a pretty... Uh, you know, it's a pretty easy argument to make. And, you know, my dad kind of just bent to her will. But as Teresa grew into a teen, developing early and soon looking more woman than child, her mother became worried. I mean, Teresa was beautiful, and the opposite sex was noticing. Friends say Teresa used to imitate her mother's Spanish accent, mimicking the way Mercedes would caution Teresa not to go in the bushes with the boys. Suddenly, her parents wanted to reel Teresa in. Our parenting was, it was kind of scattershot. And my sister and myself just were always knocking down boundaries. That's what kids do when the parenting is maybe not where it needs to be. You know, they definitely tried. And... My sister was just a little bit too much of a wild horse. She did not want to be corralled. Claudia remembers how his sister, at first, seemed to be winning the battle with her parents. When her mother wouldn't let her wear the clothes or makeup that she wanted, Teresa simply refused to go to school. She missed something like 70-plus days of school 
refuse to go to school. So, I mean, if that's not the definition of strong-willed is, I, I don't know what, but my mother and my father were kind of at wit's end with her. And grandma and grandpa, you know, they kind of stepped in. My grandfather was sheriff of Wise County for 12 years. Teresa was sent to live with her grandparents, J.R. and Flora Branch, on their 200-acre farm outside of Decatur. I mean, that's just salt of the earth people right there. I mean, they grew all their own crops. They had cattle. They had it all, livestock. The only time they went to town is if, you know, somebody needed some medicine or maybe some stitches. And that would probably have been a high number of stitches because Grandpa would have stitched himself up. You know, he was, he was just tough as nails. Now for Teresa, this was a major change. She was enrolled in Slidell High School, a small country school that was a far cry from Sam Houston High School, where Teresa had begun her sophomore year in Arlington. I mean, Slidell's class of 1986 was made up of a dozen graduates. At Sam Houston, there were 577 graduates that year. But the change of environment ended up being just what Teresa needed. Though many of the students at Slidell had known each other since kindergarten, Teresa transitioned easily from the new kid to beloved student. Lisa Duty, then known as Lisa Freeman, was a year younger than Teresa, but the two became close friends. We got along really well because she was just a jokester. She was, had a great sense of humor. Uh, she was always laughing and cutting up. Um, we were cheerleaders together uh, at school, and so we, you know, shared that. And just Slidell's a really small school, so you get to know each other very well, and there's not a whole lot of people uh, there. So um, her personality was just glowing. Teresa would join the yearbook staff, serve as class treasurer on the Student Congress, and was even named president of the Future Homemakers of America her senior year. She was a talented seamstress and made a dress that won the Grand Champion Award at the Wise County Fair. Her senior year, her classmates even voted her most beautiful and best dressed. She'd even had a serious boyfriend. Tim Maxwell was three years older, but had first met Teresa at a Christmas party at Slidell. She'd been visiting her grandparents and had gone with a friend of the party. But she and Tim ended up talking all night and he'd later drive her home dropping her out of view of her grandparents' house so her grandpa wouldn't know. I was, I was smitten with her the very first time I seen her. We liked each other. Her, she had a great personality. She was just happy-go-lucky. She was game for anything. The two would ride and call each other after Teresa returned home to Arlington. They later lost touch, but when Tim ran into Teresa about a year later at a basketball game and learned she had moved in with her grandparents, the romance was back on. Tim says Teresa's grandparents, especially the old sheriff, were not happy about that. Her grandpa despises of me because of my dad, right? Dislikes me because of my name. Dad was young and my dad, you know, my dad showed him no mercy, I guess, you know, he just rubbed him wrong, I guess you could say. So my dad's name just took it on down that I'd be just like my father. So grandpa was strict. Tim says he gave the young couple a barrage of rules. No holding hands, no kissing, be home by curfew, or else stay in the living room when you visit the house. I mean, it was like Ward Cleaver times 50,000. <laughs> Ward Cleaver with a badge, I guess you'd say. 
Because he was so strict, Teresa's relationship could be somewhat tumultuous with her grandfather. Tim says Teresa even lived a time with his own parents after her and her granddad had a big fight. But the winter before her death, Teresa had actually broken things off with Tim. She was a senior. She just wanted to do what seniors do and be with the girls and do what she would date other people because she hadn't dated nobody but me, I guess. Or she might have dated other people before me, but she just wanted to have a little fun. Still, at some point, not long before her death, Tim and Teresa start seeing each other again. Tim says they weren't so public about it this time around. In fact, on the weekend of her death, he didn't even go to prom with her. She chose instead to go with her younger brother, John, her friend Lisa, and another girlfriend. But they saw each other that night at an after-prom party, and they made plans to hang out together the next day after Teresa returned from Arlington. But it would be the last time he saw Teresa alive. The next morning, on April 19, 1986, Teresa talks Lisa into going with her to Arlington. John needed to get back for a soccer game, and Teresa wanted to pick up some more clothes and belongings from her parents' house. The trip wasn't supposed to take all day. I mean, after all, Teresa had plans with Tim that evening. Lisa remembers they dropped John off and visited one of Teresa's best friends in Arlington, a girl Lisa hadn't met before before returning to Teresa's parents' house to finish packing up the red Pontiac Sunfire hatchback that Teresa's grandparents had given her. Around 1 p.m., they began the trip back to Slidell. So we left her house, and we didn't get very far before the car broke down. And I don't know specifics as to where we were when it broke down. I know we were about to get onto a highway, um, and, you know, the car died, so we you know, roll, got into a parking lot, went to a payphone because there weren't cell phones back then, um, and called her dad, and he came and picked us up, jump-started the car, and then we took it back to their house where he was going to try to figure out what was going on with it. So Lisa thinks Teresa's father took the battery to Sears to try to get it tested. Whatever he did, it took hours, and it would be that evening before Teresa and Lisa were ready to hit the road again. It was still light outside when they left. We got about a mile or two from her house, several blocks, and it died again. This time at an intersection at a light. And so there we are stranded and um, somebody stopped to help us jump start the car. I stayed in the car and she got out with the guy and they jump started it. And then we turned back to head back towards her house. And literally within about a quarter mile as we're turned back around going through this apartment complex to cut through there to get the closest route back to her house, it died again. So here they are, stranded again, in the parking lot of what was then known as the Cornerstone Apartment Complex. But this time, there's no payphone in sight. So Teresa tells Lisa that she's gonna run to the house to get her dad. And I said, okay, I'll go with you. And I'm, I'm you know, I'm buckling my seatbelt, getting ready to go. And she says, no, uh, I don't want you to go because I've got all this stuff in the car and this isn't the greatest area, and so I don't want anybody to take all my stuff. So, and meanwhile, I am small town girl from Slidell. I have no idea where I am. If somebody asks me, where are you, and give me directions to where you are, I do not have a clue. I'm somewhere in Arlington, that's all I know. Now Lisa, understandably, isn't real keen on this idea of being left behind. She tries to talk Teresa into just knocking on one of the apartment doors and asking to use someone's phone. 
small town girl. I didn't know that you don't just knock on somebody's door and ask to use the phone. And that's when she said, uh, no, not here. This is not a good area to do that. Teresa takes off her wristwatch and hands it to Lisa. And she goes, my house is, you know, just a few blocks away. I'm going to run to the house. I'll be right back. I said, okay. So Lisa watches Teresa run around the side of one of the apartment buildings and then disappears out of sight. And that was about 8.30 p.m. The walk to her parents' house on Westover Drive should have taken her like 10 minutes tops. So Lisa waits in the Pontiac as instructed. But she's nervous. I mean, it's getting darker outside, and her mind keeps filling with Teresa's parting words about how this is not the best part of town. And she's thinking, if it's not safe enough for Teresa's belongings to be left unwatched, is it safe enough for her? So I was scared to death, quite frankly. Every time a car came by, I was like, ducking down in the seat, you know? I didn't want them to see me. Even though she left me there so that nobody would mess with the stuff, I didn't want them to see me in the car because I was afraid somebody was gonna do something to me, you know? Meanwhile, she's gone, you know, 20 minutes goes by, 30 minutes goes by. It may have been 40 minutes that she was gone when I'm finally like, I started getting mad. I was mad at her at that point because I'm like, you run off and leave me here. I have no idea where I am. You've already told me it's a bad neighborhood. This is what's going through my mind at this time because I have no idea what has happened. So now Lisa is frantic. Teresa had left her purse behind, so Lisa starts going through it, and she finds Teresa's address book in there. Now, there's no number for Teresa's parents, but she finds the name and number of Teresa's best friend, who she had just met that day. Now she just needs a phone. So she's not about to knock on an apartment door after Teresa's earlier warning, but she works up the nerve to approach a teen boy and girl that have been talking outside the complex's laundry room. And I said, do you guys know where a payphone is? And they said, yeah, it's right there. Literally right behind them, in view of where I was, there was a Coke machine right next to the laundromat. And between the Coke machine and the laundromat was a payphone. If we would have known that, at that time, she could have just dialed her dad from the payphone. But from where we were sitting, you couldn't see it. So this just breaks my heart. I mean, there always seems to be these what-ifs in cases like this. What if that Coke machine hadn't been there and they'd seen the payphone from the start? The events of that night would have unfolded quite differently. Teresa's dad would have picked them up. They probably have had to just stay the night in Arlington. Teresa would still be alive. But instead, they never saw it, and now Lisa's alone, scared, and has no idea what's happened to Teresa. She calls Teresa's friend, the one she just met. Uh, I said, hi, this is Lisa. I met you today with Teresa. She goes, yeah, we're, aren't you guys going home? And I said, well, yeah, we were. I said, and then I told her, I said, we broke down. And then I just, like, broke down. I was, like, bawling. I'm like, Teresa's not back. We, You know, her car broke down twice, and she went to go get her dad's, but it's been, like, 45 minutes, and she's not back yet, and I don't know what's going on, and I have no idea. She goes, well, where are you? I said, I have no idea where I am. So Teresa's other friend tries to calm Lisa down. She tells Lisa that she'll make a three-way call to Teresa's parents. That way, Lisa can stay on the line. When Teresa's dad answers, the friend asks if Teresa's there. Kenneth says no. She'd left some time ago. And she goes, well, I've got Lisa on the other line, and their car broke down again, and she was running home about 45 minutes ago, and she hasn't made it, obviously hasn't made it yet. And then he asked, where are you? And I said, well, I don't know, and I just kind of described my surroundings. 
apartment complex. It looks like on the other side of the wall of this apartment complex, there's a, a shopping center of some sort, you know, and I kind of told him how far we had gone before. He goes, I know where you are. I'll be there in a few minutes. Teresa's friend stayed on the line with Lisa until Teresa's dad arrived. Like I said, I was completely freaking out now if I wasn't freaking out before because she'd never made it home. And that was not like her. She would not have done that to me. You know, something had happened. So Kenneth takes Lisa back to the family home. They leave Lisa's car behind. Police would later determine that the car had a bad alternator, leaving the battery unable to hold a charge. Now, Claudio was home that night, and he remembers his parents being worried about Teresa's whereabouts. But he, for one, wasn't that concerned. He thought Teresa was fine and was just being Teresa. In fact, he made a flippant remark that he now regrets, then headed out to go meet with some buddies to play poker. I actually made a pretty inappropriate joke prior to knowing what was ultimately going to be her fate. And I was just being the obnoxious older brother saying ridiculous things. Let's just say I said something that wasn't very nice about my sister, and part of what I said actually transpired. And, you know, that was a tough thing to, that was a tough thing to live with, but it was just being a dumb teenager, right? That Claudio brings this up after all this time shows just how much that callous remark still haunts him today. But when you're young, you think you and others are invincible. I mean, Teresa was a strong young woman. She'd even bloodied Claudio's nose in a fight before. So of course his mind doesn't immediately venture into the darkest of possibilities when he learns his sister is missing, the way it does when you grow up and become a parent yourself. Teresa's parents frantically start calling friends to see if anyone's seen Teresa. Hearing the news, a female family friend jumps into her car and begins to travel the route that Kenneth Branch believed his daughter would have taken, searching for any sign of Teresa. And then about 15, 20 minutes later, a knock comes on the door. It was one of their friends that they had called. The woman tells the Branches that she's been driving around the area and saw something suspicious. So she said, well, I was driving it, and I passed by this church, and there's a bunch of cops there. I don't know what it is, because I didn't stop, but I thought you might want to go with me. The dad might want to go with me over there to see if it has anything to do with it, because it was literally like across the street from the apartment complex that she had left. Kenneth agrees and asks Lisa to come with them. The three pile into Kenneth's car and drive to the Harmony Baptist Church at 1814 West Arkansas Lane. The church is just across Arkansas Lane from the apartment complex where Lisa's car remains. When they arrive, the church's parking lot is blocked with yellow crime scene tape. So we pull up, just nose into the parking lot, and a police officer comes over and says, Hey, you know, can I help you? And he says, Yeah, um... Well, my daughter, we're looking for my daughter. She went missing a little bit ago, and we didn't know if this had anything to do with it or not. And so the police officer goes, well, we're not really sure what happened right here at the moment, but if you'll go around the other side of the church, then I'll have somebody come take your statement. And that, you know, and at that point, I thought to myself, oh, somebody broke into the church. You know, this doesn't have anything to do with it. But on the other side of the church, an officer comes out and asks Teresa's dad to step out of the car and talk with him. As they talk, another officer asks Lisa to come with him and answer some questions. 
They ask her when she last saw Teresa and what Teresa had been wearing. She answers the officer's questions, describing the sweatshirt and sweatpants Teresa wore. The officer then thanks her and tells her she can go sit back in the car. Now, meanwhile, Teresa's father is still outside, still talking to that officer. Lisa remembers how she and the family's friend had the windows cracked and were trying unsuccessfully to hear what the officer was telling Teresa's father. They were glued to Kenneth's face, watching his facial expression for any hint of what was going on. She didn't hear the words, but she vividly remembers seeing the moment that Kenneth Branch learned that his only daughter was dead, the way his head just dropped down in defeat. I just saw the dad. destroyed you know and um so then the officer comes around and opens the car door my door and uh kneels down next to me and he says ma'am there's no way easy way to tell you this we found your friend and she's dead i just you never expect that that's what's gonna happen and that, that that could be the outcome. I mean, it was, I remember it like it was yesterday. I don't know that I'll ever forget it, you know? The feeling and the, I mean, I knew before her mother knew, you know? It was just heartbreaking. Claudio had bounced around to a couple of different houses into early the next morning, so he was surprised when his best friend, who lived just a couple houses down from him, somehow managed to track him down and asked to see him outside. You know, he looks me dead square in the eyes and, and he says, Teresa's been murdered. And when he first said it to me, my initial reaction, my honest reaction to this was, Man, you guys really are, you guys are really going out of your way to mess with me because you, because I just took 20 bucks off of you in a silly card game. Man, this is, this is good. This is good, guys. And he said it again, and he just, he just broke down crying. And it was right then that I knew. So Teresa's body had been found that night by four teenagers, two boys and two girls. Kayla Blank is the latest Arlington homicide detective assigned to her case. We recently sat down and went over the case together. Blank says the teens had just been cruising around that night, possibly drinking too, police suspect. They were driving down the street just south of the church when they thought they recognized the person in a passing car as one of their brothers. So the driver turns around in the church parking lot, and that's when the boys see what looks like a person laying in the parking lot. They back up and leave, and as they're driving back, they're like, hey, did you see that? What looked like a body in the parking lot? And the other boys, yeah, that looked like a body. And the girls thought they were playing around. Oh, you're just trying to scare us, that's not gonna work. And they're like, no, no, seriously. So they drove back several times actually to go look at the body, they initially think she's possibly just drunk, intoxicated, homeless, they don't know. But then they start thinking, well, she hasn't really moved in all these times that we're looking at her. And so they get out, take a closer look, and that's when they realize 
she's dead. So these kids are scared. I mean, they're underage. They don't know who did this and if they're still around. And they hightail it out of there, go to a pool hall on Cooper Street. And it's there that one of the girls convinces them they need to call police. They eventually all return to the church and give statements to officers. Coincidentally, the two male teens would later both become police officers themselves. So when found, Teresa was laying on her side in the southeast corner of the parking lot. Her white sweatpants were pulled down to about mid-thigh, and her blue sweatshirt was pulled up. There's obviously uh, blood uh, both pulling on the ground beside her, and there's some blood seen on her clothing. Um, from the initial get-go, it was pretty clear that she'd been sexually assaulted and shot. She'd been shot at close range with a large caliber gun, the bullet entering just under her heart and exiting out her lower back. So from the beginning, the case proved challenging for investigators. Could Teresa's killer have been someone she knew? I mean, this was the neighborhood she'd grown up in. Or was she randomly targeted after being spotted jogging down the street toward her home? Of great interest to investigators was the so-called Good Samaritan who had stopped and jump-started Teresa's car when it stalled at the intersection of Pioneer Parkway and Bowen Road. Blank said police released a composite drawing of the Good Samaritan based on Lisa's description. Skinny white male, mid-30s, early 40s, with light-colored sandy hair dressed in blue jeans and a shirt. And that was initially one of the big hang-ups on the case, is they were very interested in trying to figure out who this guy was, because he's never come forward. And it was always odd to the initial detectives that this, you know, person who obviously would have seen the media coverage, obviously seen this, why he never would have came forward and just said, yeah, I remember them, this is where it was. While the composite didn't reveal the Good Samaritan's identity, a couple did contact police, reporting that they'd seen the man helping a teenage girl with her stalled car that day, then drive off north on Bowen Road in the opposite direction of the teens. Branch said while investigators were frustrated they never identified the man, they became confident that he simply went on his way that day after helping Teresa and had nothing to do with her murder. But the media coverage back then did unearth a new witness who provided investigators more insight into what had happened to Teresa between when she left her car and when her body was found in the church parking lot. The man called police after seeing the news coverage. He said he'd been returning to his house on Avon Hill from the store at around 8.30, 8.45 that night when he saw something peculiar, what looked like a mannequin lying in the front yard of a home on Avon Hill, about a block south of Arkansas. Now, Avon Hill runs west of the Harmony Baptist Church, and it makes sense that Teresa would be jogging south on Avon Hill to reach Westover, the street that her parents live on. He describes it as a light-colored mannequin wearing a blue sweatshirt, white sweatpants, and white shoes. He also noticed that it had blonde, what he thought to be a blonde wig. And he thought that was weird, but he thought, well, you know, it's kids, there's probably just somebody pulling a prank or whatever. Well, as he continues on, he sees another vehicle pass him and kind of pull over near where the mannequin was. He would describe the car as a large sedan, dull yellow or gold four-door car, possibly a 66 to 70 model Pontiac Catalina. So the man crests a hill and continues on his way home, but what he just glimpsed is nagging at him. So he turns around and heads back north on Avon Hill to investigate further. And as he's getting closer, he sees what looks like possibly two men picking this mannequin up and putting it into their car. He doesn't get a good look at the men, it's dark now, but he sees them drive away and turn east on Arkansas Lane. Curious, he heads that same way, 
but doesn't see the car anymore. It's not until later that he realizes, after seeing the news, that what he saw was probably Teresa. So investigators believe that Teresa had been assaulted on Avon Hill, likely even rendered unconscious, and then was loaded into this car. Her autopsy would note non-lethal trauma to the back of her head. They believe the witness lost sight of the car because immediately after turning east on Arkansas, the driver whips into the church parking lot, driving around the church into the southeast corner of the lot where Teresa was raped and shot. So as we all know, murder investigations usually start by looking at a victim's spouse or boyfriend or girlfriend. And in Teresa's case, this meant questioning Tim. Now remember, the two were actually supposed to have a date on the day that Teresa was murdered. Tim says he talked to Teresa earlier that Saturday, maybe a couple times in all. She told him about her car troubles and that she'd be getting back to Slidell later than planned. He remembers trying to call her from a payphone to get an update as the day stretched into night. He could never reach her. Eventually, he goes to his parents' house to wait for her and ends up falling asleep on the couch. The phone ringing early the next morning wakes him up. He'd later find out it was Teresa's uncle on the other line. I can remember my daddy going, who? You've got to be kidding me. Tim's dad would be the one to break the news to him that Teresa was dead. He remembers rushing to Teresa's grandparents, then to Arlington when he learned they were there. He recalls it was Lisa, or one of Teresa's brothers, who told him the details of what had happened. He remembers feeling like an outsider. He knew Teresa's grandpa didn't want him there. So Teresa would be buried in Sycamore Cemetery in Wise County. It's a small, peaceful cemetery dotted and surrounded by trees and literally across a country road from her grandparents' farm. In fact, Claudio remembers him and Teresa previously being paid to mow the cemetery. I met Tim there recently to see Teresa's grave. He is as country as his voice sounds, decked out in a long sleeve blue shirt, jeans, and a cowboy hat. He wears sunglasses, partly for the hot Texas sun, but also to keep me from seeing his eyes water as he talks about Teresa. When he puts them on, he looks a little bit like Dale Earnhardt Sr., the now-deceased race car driver. So, after the funeral, right here, a man approached me here and gave me a card and asked me if I'd meet him in a few days at my convenience in his office at Arlington, Texas. So Tim does meet with the detective. He answers his questions. He tells him about what he'd been doing that Saturday. He said at the end of their talk, the detective asked if he'd be willing to take a lie detector test. He told the detective he'd have to talk to his parents about that first. He remembers then going back to his parents' house and seeking his dad's advice as the older man milked a cow. Junior, I told my dad, they think I got something to do with it, daddy. He went and got me a lawyer on a retainer for $10,000. And my lawyer went down there and talked to him and told him I would not be talked to again without his presence. And there'd be no lie detector test. So I agreed to it, and he agreed to it. Did y'all end up agreeing to one, or? Hell no. Why would I agree to Why would I want to go down there and bait him on? I had nothing to do with it. So during my recent meeting with Tim, it becomes painfully obvious that some of the information Tim thought he knew about Teresa's murder was wrong, and I would have to be the one to disclose the truth. Who would have done it? That's what I wanted to know. Not how it happened. Who would have done it? Why would they do it? Why did they do it? Why? They didn't break her or nothing. They just took her jewelry and shot her. She was actually sexually assaulted. Was she really? Yeah. I met with the detective and we went through all, through all the case. I'm sorry. 
Visibly upset, Tim walks away from me. I mean, clear to the other end of the cemetery, trying to digest what he's just learned. It is so heartbreaking to witness. Several minutes later, after he's composed himself, he begins to walk back toward me, but stops first at Teresa's grave and bends down. I can hear him telling her that he's sorry for what she went through. When he finally walks back to me, he asks me if I've got any more bombshells to drop. He says Arlington police told him years ago that Teresa wasn't raped. They led him to believe that her jewelry was taken, though. That they'd lied to Tim isn't that surprising. I mean, when dealing with a potential suspect, it's not unusual for detectives to keep back facts or even mislead a suspect if they think it might help in their questioning or investigation. But though 32 years have passed since Teresa's murder, this newly found out information seems to devastate Tim. Suddenly, what he's imagined all those years, that this was a quick robbery and death, wasn't that at all. So after Tim had gotten his attorney, he said the police left him alone. And it would be several years, he thinks around 2005 or 2006, when he answers a knock on his door and is greeted by a Texas Ranger and two cold case detectives from Arlington. They told Tim they'd been trying to track him down for some time and wanted to see if he'd give them a DNA sample for comparison tests in Teresa's murder. Tim gladly agreed. That would be, they could eliminate me for sure right there because I knew for sure, my family knows for sure, several people in this community believe that I had nothing to do with it. And some people in this community believe I did have something to do with it. Tim says he let the detectives have free range to search his house. He even spent 30 minutes with one of the officers going over where he'd been the day of Teresa's murder again. I told him the same story I've told every time, you know, what my trail was that day, where I was, who I seen along the way that could verify they see me here, there, over here, wherever. You know, I had plenty of eyewitnesses to see me in this area all day and all night. Besides my folks, I know that's not a good, good alibi, but I mean, I was asleep on my mom and dad's couch. Blank confirms that the DNA testing ruled out Tim as a suspect in the case. But Teresa's death and the finger pointing by some was hard. Tim admits so hard that this lifelong farm boy decided to leave his hometown behind. He moved to Denton, started working in Dallas with his brother-in-law. He said he took a few treasured belongings along with him, including a gold nugget promise ring that Teresa had once given him and moved on. He'd later have a short-lived marriage that brought with it a daughter. Were you able to put it behind you? Can't do it yet today. I still care it with me today. For Lisa, Teresa's death brought not only the grief of losing one of her closest friends, but fear. Lisa would find herself frequently looking in the rearview mirror as she drove alone from her job in Decatur, paranoid that someone might be following her. She'd later take Taekwondo classes. She wanted to be able to defend herself should she be attacked. The thing is, it could happen anywhere. She was in her neighborhood. You know, you think if you're in your neighborhood that you're safe. Lisa's father would be so frightened of how close his little girl came to evil that night that he went on his own crusade to try to find Teresa's killer. He only shared what he had done years later with Lisa. He goes, you remember when I put that, that window tinting on my car? It was almost like a mirror when you're looking at it. You couldn't see in, but you could see out. I said, yeah, and he goes, I did that because I had gotten a video camera and I would go to that apartment complex and take surveillance video trying to find any 
shred of evidence of either the person who may have helped you guys or, you know, something. Because he was just desperate as a father to protect me, to find out what may have happened, you know? Because um, I'm sure he was feel fearful for me just like I was fearful for myself when you don't know what happened and who did it and whether or not those people think you may have seen something. Teresa's mother, Mercedes, appeared outwardly strong at Teresa's funeral. Claudia remembers his mother elbowing him during it, telling him to stop crying. Seems like a strange expectation, but Claudia says he respected his mother for it. For my mother, it was, I think, just a matter of probably what little bit of pride and dignity she may have felt, you know, I'm not going to break, I'm not going to collapse in front of people I don't know. I'm in public, I'm going to hold my head high, and I'm going to, I'm going to deal with my pain internally. That's strength. That is real strength. And you know, it was probably the last strong thing I saw her do. But outside of the public eye, Mercedes was grappling with intense grief and fear. She'd walk around her house crying, I want Teresa back. Her paranoia grew so great that she eventually had a nervous breakdown. She's afraid that whoever did this to Teresa is coming after one of us, all of us, her. She really just, she just really fell, fell apart. So while Claudio believes Teresa died fast, instantly or within seconds of being shot, he says his mother's pain and suffering dragged on. What my mother experienced was, was worse because she did it to herself in a way. And all I mean by that is I'm not blaming her. I just mean it's when trying to cope, you know, your, your mind can only sustain the effort for so long. And she did the best she could. And she was put into the Fort Worth Psychiatric Ward. That 4th of July, just three months after Teresa's murder, Kenneth decided to take his wife to Lake Whitney for the holiday weekend. I think my father, as messed up as he was, and crazy, and I'm actually using that term quite literally, not figuratively. I think his intentions were best, but we've got a patient trying to help a patient here. And my mother was in no condition to have somebody like my father be responsible for her. You know, they're both dealing with a horrible, horrible tragedy. And my mother took too much medication and overdosed. Claudio remembers waking up that morning to find the pastor from the family's church standing in his room. He said to me, he goes, Claudio, do you know, do you know why I'm here? <laughs> and without even blinking, I said to him, you're going to tell me my mom's dead. And he just shook his head. So, 
That's how I found out about mom. And then I got the task of going into my 15-year-old brother's bedroom to tell him. So with his daughter and wife now dead, Kenneth goes off the deep end. He disappears, leaving the task of making funeral arrangements to his parents. Claudio said as day after day went by with no word from his dad, he remembers his grandparents getting mad, wondering if they'd have to have the funeral without him. In the end, he resurfaced in time. John, the youngest of the siblings, went to live with his grandparents. Claudio said in his own grief, he was initially mad at his grandparents. Boy, I blamed Grandpa for the car, for my sister. I blamed him to his face. He knew it wasn't about him. But Claudio would eventually move past his anger and grow especially close to his grandparents. He says they kind of became his surrogate parents. With Mercedes no longer around to watch over him, Kenneth stops taking his medication for his schizophrenia. He's unable to hold steady employment. He survives only on his U.S. Navy disability check, odd jobs, and the occasional crime. His Tarrant County rap sheets include convictions for crimes like check hiding and forgery. It just became mundane. It became old hat. Oh, Dad's gotten arrested again. Meanwhile, as the years roll by, there's changes in the detectives assigned to the case and in technology. Investigators try various ways to identify the killer from the biological evidence he left behind. In 2001, the DNA profile is entered into the combined DNA index system, but no match is ever made to any criminal offender in the database. Police even later get approval to run a familial search in CODIS should the suspect have relatives in the system, but again, nothing. So around 2007, Investigators seek what's called a biogeographical ancestry analysis of the DNA. The analysis estimates that, in all probability, the killer's ancestry was 89% European. So with a finding like that, police kind of assume their killer is Caucasian. You know, they didn't have really the technology to then subdivide those ancestors. They were just kind of generic placeholders, if you will. But last year, Arlington police do a much more thorough genetic analysis through Virginia-based Parabon Nanolabs. And through that analysis, they learn that Teresa's killer is actually of Middle Eastern ancestry. They also get an idea of what Teresa's rapist and killer may have looked like. Parabon uses genetic traits from DNA samples to actually predict a suspect's physical appearance, including skin, hair, and eye color. They then create a composite of what the killer would have likely looked like. So police release this composite to the media. And you can see it for yourself at www.startelegram.com slash out of the cold. Blanks of the composite generated some tips, some that even seemed promising. Police even ran what they called a trash run on one of the suspects that surfaced. Uh, essentially, uh, when people take their trash out, it becomes abandoned property once it hits the curb line because they're trying to wait for trash people to come pick it up. That means it's essentially fair game for us as detectives to then collect as we would anything else. It's abandoned property that we can then seize. From there, we actually go through the trash and try and find specific items that would have uh, subjects DNA. So they do the DNA comparison, but it wasn't a match. At the end of the day, we still don't know who killed Teresa Branch. 
A year after his daughter's death, Kenneth was already coming to grips with the possibility that the case would never be solved. In an interview with the Star-Telegram back then, he admitted hope was fading. I'd like to see it solved, but the chances now are, are remote, I guess, said the then 50-year-old man. In the end, he would die at age 79, still not knowing who killed his daughter. Remarried, his wife had dropped him off on Lancaster Avenue in Fort Worth in May of 2016 for a doctor's appointment. He was crossing the street when he was struck by an SUV and killed. Kenneth would be buried alongside Mercedes and Teresa at the Sycamore Cemetery. Claudio admits he wasn't that bothered when his father died. He knows that'll sound callous to many, but after a lifetime of problems that his father created, either intentionally or because of mental illness, he says you get to a point where you just want to be done with it. It was a tough life for him. It wasn't a fair life, but you know, everybody, everybody had skin in this horrible game. And I just decided I was done being on the team. And it was time for me to take care of another group of people. And that group of people is my family, my kids, my wife. And I've had good success there. My wife, we've been married 20 years. And she's the best thing that could ever happen to me. Though he acknowledges there's been times of frustration over the past 32 years that Teresa's killer hasn't been caught. He knows police are doing what they can. And he says he still has hope. I mean, he's read about other cold cases that have recently been solved after 20, 30, even 40 years. So he knows it can be done. It would be nice to know who did it. The why is, I don't know. There's not a good why. Person's a monster. There's no why to a monster. And if, if an opportunity for punishment were, were possible, whatever the, whatever the law will allow, right? If it's the death penalty, it's the death penalty. If it's life in prison, I mean, this person's already skated for 32 years, breathing air that they probably shouldn't have been breathing. It's not going to make me happy. I'm not going to rejoice and jump up and down or anything like that. It will just feel like what is supposed to happen, happens. Bad guy gets caught, bad guy gets punished. Everybody else is just living their lives and hopefully out of harm's way from, from this, this animal, this monster. If you have information about who killed Teresa Branch, please contact Detective Caleb Blank at 817-459-5735. So on a side note, I'd like to share a quick message. Six years ago this month, a reporter named Austin Tice, who was freelancing for McClatchy newspapers and other media outlets, was detained while on assignment in Syria. On this anniversary, our one McClatchy company motto means more to us than ever as we at Out of the Cold and the Star-Telegram stand firmly with the Tice family and hope for Austin's safe return. Here's his mother, Deborah, describing the battle to bring him home. 
we never would have imagined that we weren't going to know anything about where he is or who's holding him. How's that even possible? Across the country this month, McClatchy is raising flags and banners in Austin's honor, helping to bring attention to his plight. You can help too by tweeting with the hashtag FreeAustinTice or sharing a Facebook post in his name as we keep Austin in our thoughts today and every day. Thank you for listening. Check back next month for a new episode of Out of the Cold. Out of the Cold is produced by Steve Wilson, edited by Steve Kaufman, and written and narrated by me, Deanna Boyd.